Today, we're going to talk about trust. Um, fear, sort of, but mostly I think as you're hearing what the, the Lord's prepared for you today, think in terms of trust, and, and specifically trusting God. Maybe, maybe fear would be kind of like the opposite of trust. And, and one thing we're really good at, because I think the devil has really, you know, he's got to prioritize his resources and maybe his spirit resources are focused around this area of fear. He tries to get us to be in fear and then we might be afraid of something and we'll read God's word and it'll bring us to a place of peace and then he comes back and somehow we just seem to want to embrace this emotion that's called fear. Fear is like um, the anticipation of danger or pain or something bad and ungodly fear right there's a godly fear not and i'm not even talking about the fear of the lord the reverent fear of god not that but but there's there's wise fear like it's wise that i be conscious not to take one more step right because the thing's not there anymore if i take one more step so maybe that's a fear like a fear of falling is, is a good thing it keeps me from it creates boundaries that are good for me but ungodly fear has no fruit it causes us to live in a place that diminishes what God has for us and has through us to get done. So the context today, I mean, I guess if you want to think of fear, think of it as the opposite of trust, right? We can fear things which take us out of trusting God, or we can deny the fear and place our full trust in God. Amen? Okay. So this week's... Um, Scriptures, this is number actually number 18, because Salito preached one. Number 17 of Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of chapter 6, so we're roughly two-thirds of the way through the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been almost seven months. It's awesome. Man. Okay, so this week, it's uh, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. I'll read them to you, and then we'll talk about them. For this reason I say to you... Now, this is Jesus, by the way. This is God speaking to you. If you have a red letter Bible, this is all red letters. So hear Jesus speaking to you. Amen? All right. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, or the nations, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That last part, I, I mean, I'm not God and I know it belongs there, but that part he could have left off. <laughs> I've actually had some days that have had no trouble of their own. Is it hard for you to trust God? 
Seriously, is it? I mean, in some areas it's probably not so hard. In other areas, maybe it's really hard. And maybe there's a season where it's tough and another season where it's easy. But, but sometimes it's not that easy to trust God. I, I want to just share with you some Old Testament stuff that maybe will make it easier for you. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, imagine Israel, right? The, the people of Israel back, you know, how many thousands of years ago. Israel was not... Um, a wealthy nation, right? They, were, they had just come out of 400 years of slavery. They ended up ultimately in that slavery because of famine. And uh, you know, the father, Jacob, you know, took his family, his clan into Egypt because of Joseph, his son that was lo- they thought was lost. But, you know, so they, they had some prosperity and then they became slaves for 400 years. God takes them out of this situation. They're like subsistence. They're paycheck to paycheck. There's no big bank account. There's no slush fund, rainy day fund. They don't work um, Monday through Friday and take Saturday and Sunday off. It's basically dawn to dusk every single day to survive, right? So then God comes along and he gives them these new rules that they have to live by. And, and he gives them the rules um, because he loves people. He's creating an order and he's, he's starting to establish his will within his first chosen people so that ultimately when the time was perfect right, he would bring his son and then advance his kingdom through this whole world through his church. But at this point, he's just starting to lay the foundation. And he's, he gives them these three things. Now, I, I'm not an uh, Old Testament law expert by any stretch of the imagination. I really don't have that much interest in it. So if I, if I mess up a little, if, you know, if one of you are, you can tell me about it later. But it's not, the, it's not the point of the sermon. It's just to paint a picture, okay? All right, so because God loves the people, he institutes these three things. The first is the tithe. And the tithe is to ensure the well-being of the Levites because when he divided the promised land up, he didn't give them any. Right? So everybody else is responsible for the care of the Levites, the priests in this case, so that they can then um, minister to God. So he institutes the tithe. The second thing he does is uh, the Sabbath. He institutes the Sabbath for everybody because they work in so hard, you know, nobody gets any rest. God, in six days, created all that's created, and then he took a rest for a seventh day. He institutes the Sabbath. And then the third is this thing called gleaning. And, and I'll explain gleaning a little bit more in a minute. But the gleaning is kind of a thing that God in, instituted, or gleaning is a thing that God instituted um, to look out for the welfare of the, the alien, the widow, or the orphan, to make sure that they had some means of caring for themselves or feeding themselves. So the tithe, the Sabbath, and gleaning. We'll talk about each one. First, the tithe. Now, when, when I taught you guys tithe was the right thing to do, it's the, it's the appropriate way to return back to God when you recognize that everything that you have came from God. I told you it's a 10% kind of a good thing to do. But in Israel, it was more than a 10% thing. It's at least a 23% thing. So the first 10% of the tithe is for the Levites. And then the second 10%, which I don't know, honestly, if this went to somebody or they were just required to put it aside, but they had to fund these um, festivals, these... uh, celebrations that God commanded them to do, and there had to be some way to pay for it. So 10% for the Levites, 10% for the festivals, and then 10% every third year, which is you know, roughly 3% a year. So I'm saying minimum 23% goes to um, 
I forgot what that one went to. Oh, for the needy. You 10% in the third year you set aside to help the needy. Okay, so there's the tithe. But the tithe in this case is really at least 23%. And, and I've heard it really, when I've heard this taught, it was more like 28%. Okay, all right. Remember, now I'm a hand-to-mouth kind of guy, right? I got to work from dawn to dusk. I got to work every day just to feed myself and my family. God takes back 23% of the fullness of that. Then the Sabbath, Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 8 to 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. It shall, in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with him or with you. So here now he, he's going to take back, you got 23% of your, your total stuff that you produce. Now he's going to take back what, what is 14% of your opportunity to harvest and plant and get stuff done because one-seventh of your week you can't do anything anymore. And God's so smart because he knew us or he knew them. He's like, okay, if I tell my people they have to have a Sabbath, they'll be like, that's awesome. And they'll just double work the slave, right? They'll make the cow. They'll teach the cow how to do it without them. And the cow has to you know, do the plow without him so he says no no everybody gets a sabbath you your man slave your woman slave and your cow everybody has a sabbath so first he takes 23 percent now he takes 14 more percent right somebody do the math 37 right we're at 37 percent when i had to have all of it just to survive then he teaches us this thing called gleaning i love gleaning gleaning is really a concept we should grab onto however we would do it we should do it deuteronomy chapter 24 Hang on a minute, would you just like silently under your breath as I'm talking, pray for me to breathe a little bit? I'm about ready to pass out because I, I'm not breathing, I'm just talking. Maybe I should have like a pause. Let this sit, sit in a minute. Okay. Fresh wind, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, sorry. But you're praying, right? Because I can feel it, like my oxygen is better. <sighs> I'm excited. I love these scriptures and I love the gleaning. Okay, here we go. When you, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> like, the poor olive tree, when you beat your olive tree, don't beat your olive tree, it's a nice olive tree. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. In in parallel scriptures, he also talks about the field. So when you harvest your field, you're not allowed to harvest it all the way to the edge of your property. You don't harvest off the corners. If you missed a patch in the middle, you don't get to go back and get it. When you shake your olive tree must be how you harvest olives. You shake your olive tree, the olives fall down, you harvest them up. But what about all those olives that didn't fall down? I'll just wait till they're ripe, I'll come back and I'll shake the tree again. No, those are not your olives. The, the, the wheat around the edges of your field, remember the scripture in the, in the New Testament and I don't know, maybe multiple gospels where Jesus and the guys are walking along and they walk past the field and, and they're, they're having like, they're rubbing the, the wheat in their hand and they're eating the seeds out. And somebody rebukes them because, oh, it's the Sabbath and you just harvested on the Sabbath. That's gleaning. They were actually gleaning from the field a little bit of stuff so they could feed themselves. Okay, you're not praying well enough. God institutes this command that he called gleaning 
so that when the widow or the orphan was hungry, they could go to the field and they would find something there that hadn't been harvested. They could go shake the tree and the olives that came down or the ones that got ripe and fell on their own, they could pick them up. Or into the vineyard, the parts that hadn't been harvested yet was for them. It doesn't belong to you anymore, farmer. It belongs to the alien, the orphan, and the widow. I don't know what that amounts to, but I said 10%. And I think 10% is probably conservative, right? So 23% conservative, 14%, that's exact, that's 37, and another 10 Somebody told me when I was sharing this with them, they said, wow, God has an acronym. I said, what is it? They said, IRS. And I said, no, it's different. (laughs) But 47%. Now, you started off as a guy who needed to be up and ready to go at dawn. You worked until you couldn't work anymore because it was dark. You did it every day. And everything that you... And understand there's rich people in in Israel, and and it wasn't true for everybody. But generally, they were a hand-to-mouth kind of a culture. And God said... Do these things. You're commanded. And now 47%, I mean, you know, plus or minus, who knows, but 47%, a big chunk, isn't available to you anymore, whether it's in your ability to do it, whether it's in the, the fullness of what, you know, you gathered together, or if it's just not gathering at all so that somebody else can have it. And yet, when they were obedient, they were the most blessed people on earth. They had an abundance and an overabundance because God said, if you'll obey these commands of mine, so when we say, or when he says to us, listen, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all this stuff you worry. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. The nations worry about that stuff, but you don't have to worry because I know you need it. See, there's a sparrow out there that doesn't have a barn. He doesn't have a place. And, and I'm so conscious of the sparrow. In fact, not even one of them falls from the sky. Of the jillions of sparrows out there, in God's watching over his creation. Not a single sparrow falls from the sky without him being aware of it. And none of them have to harvest and, and, and put something away for tomorrow because he cares for them. He did it with Israel. He told them, okay, 47%. I'm taking 47%. You're commanded to do these things. And yet they had an overabundance when they walked with him as they were supposed to. It's not hard for him to meet his desires in us when we walk with him. Okay. A couple more things. Examples. God tells us, and all these things will be added to you. And, and it's conditional, right? It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So you have a role to play, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. He has a role to play, making sure that everything you need in the process of doing that has been provided for you. Again, if we look in the Old Testament, um, Israel was kind of commissioned as a nation. You see it in Deuteronomy 6, uh, 10 and 11. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. So he told Israel that if they would obey these commands that he's given them, that he would take them into this place and he would give them cities to live in that they didn't build, houses to live in full of stuff that they need that they didn't have to get the stuff and put it in, and they would drink from wells that they didn't have to sweat in the hot sun and dig the wells if they would meet the condition of walking with him in the way he prescribes. And and even that, if you think about it, was for his good 
in that he wanted Israel, just like, right, we're to be a city on a hill, the light of the world. Israel was to be a city on a hill, the light of the world. He didn't give Israel the promised land. He didn't dispossess the nations of that land until their sin had grown to the place where it was appropriate for him to do it. So he didn't just say, man, too bad you weren't born Israel because you could have had all this stuff that lived in the cities that you built and you could have um, drank from the cisterns that you dug. He waited until the time was right where, where their idolatrous sin had gotten so great that it was just the way that they were taken out of the land. But then the way he blessed Israel was to make them see that there's a God who's true. There's a God who loves his people. And if you walk with that God and the way he prescribes for you to walk, this is the kind of blessing that's on your life. And, and they were to be drawn unto Israel the way the world is to be drawn unto the church today because they see the light that God has shined on us and in us and through us. It's, it's a parallel. All right. Cities that you didn't build. Number two, he commissions Joshua. So Moses leads Israel all through the wilderness for all these 40 years. You know, he goes and does all the things with Pharaoh and the plagues and, the, and he lays down his staff and it's a snake. And he picks it up and it's a staff again and all these things that Moses has done. But because of Moses' disobedience, in one particular act, he wasn't the guy then that God was going to allow to lead Israel across the river into the promised land. That person became Joshua. So um, he commissions Joshua and he sends him. Just like in the, in the Great Commission, we're sent, right? Go into all the nations, preach the gospel, make disciples of everybody, and teach them all these things that I've commanded you. Here's kind of how he commissions uh, Joshua. Uh, Deuteronomy, De- <laughs> Deuteronomy 31, 7 and 8. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel... Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So God tells Joshua in front of all of Israel through Moses that he's going to go ahead of him. God is going to go ahead of Joshua. He's going to clear the way, right? Joshua is this, you know, he's a tough guy, and he, they got all kinds of swords and spears and stuff, and they're going to go to this place called Jericho, and God's going to give them this city of Jericho, right? If I'm Joshua, I'm like, okay, I'm trusting God that you gave us guys tougher than Jericho's guys, and we're going to go meet them on a battlefield, and we're going to win, and then we're going to tell them out of our new houses, and we're going to move in and take the place. But it wasn't like that. He said, and I'm going to forget the story perfect, but basically for seven days they marched around the city of Jericho, marched around the city of Jericho. And the seventh day they marched around seven times and they had the priests, I think, scream and yell, ah, and all the walls of Jericho fell down and, and God gave the city to Israel through him. He went first, he made a way. They didn't have to do what they would have thought in the natural they had to do, right? Trust myself, natural, trust God in the spiritual. So he's commissioned. His condition was be strong, be courageous, do not fear, be dismayed. In, those, in that context, God could work through him. Okay? Then in the Great Commission, we'll read that just real quickly. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, or excuse me, in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So when you hear Jesus saying to his people, his disciples, to go out into, the, into all the nations and make disciples, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all these things that I've commanded you, basically what he's doing is telling them, seek my kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, because that's what a disciple does. He walks in the righteousness of God. He manifests with the power of the Holy Spirit the kingdom of God. He's telling them, seek my kingdom and my righteousness. That's the condition. And he says, and lo, I'll be with you always, just like God was going to be with him before Joshua. Jesus will be with us always in this mission that he's given us. There's no difference. Our part, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. God's part, all these things will be added to you. Now this I'm going to just kind of read to you because I'm going to tell you a testimony. It's it's our testimony. If I say my testimony, hear our testimony. It's me and Teresa's testimony. Um, And when the testimony started, like when the process started, it was seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And I'm a a, a young Christian. I I think I got saved in um, February of 2001. This probably, this process started sometime in 2003. So I'm two years saved, you know, a white piece of paper before that. And when I prayed to God about this thing, I didn't didn't know what it meant to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. So I said, I'm going to read my Bible and pray and worship. That's what I'm going to do to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. If there's something different, if that's not it, you're just going to have to show me, all right? And in my Bible, matter of fact, if anybody's looking for a Bible, there's this Bible called the Fire Bible. I would highly recommend the Fire Bible. The commentary is, it's written from a Pentecostal perspective. It's got these awesome articles in it. It is a really excellent Bible. So if you're looking for a Bible, I think it's NIV. I don't know if it comes in multiple translations, but it's worth it for the commentary alone. It's really excellent. Okay, so this is the guy in the Fire Bible is kind of giving his rendition of what it means to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Kingdom i.e. his power and authority over all, his purposes and way of life, both on earth and into eternity, desperately desiring for God's authority and power to be evident in our lives, in our Christian gatherings. Our own desires should never get in the way of what God wants to do in our individual lives and our churches. We must pray that God's kingdom will operate in the mighty power of the Holy Spirit to save people from sin, to destroy demonic power, to heal the sick, and to bring honor to the Lord Jesus in every way. So his sense of seeking God's kingdom looks like that. I, I, couldn't, I, I agree with all of it. There's nothing I would say differently than any of that. The second is, is God's righteousness, um, i.e. his standards of truth, right, and goodness. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we must make every effort to obey Christ's commands show Christ's standards of truth and right, avoid the ungodly practices of the world, and show Christ's love towards everyone. I think that's excellent as well. So if you're wondering about seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and I'm not really sure what that means, like I wasn't sure what that meant, there's an excellent example. And honestly, if you, if you couldn't remember all that, just let me know, send me an email, and I will send all this to you. Okay. Sometimes... Probably this isn't true with you, but it has been with me oftentimes in my walk with the Lord as I've prayed and sought for things, you know, not, not stuff, but you know, his hand to move things, healings, whatever. 
There's never been much doubt in my mind that God can. If I ever struggle with doubt, it's if he will. And, and I'm still trying to sort all that out to understand better why and why not. But I never wrestled too much with he can. But sometimes I wrestled with if he will. Our testimony is a, is a testimony of he did. And, and I want to share it with you. So back in like... Like I said, it was probably 2003 sometime. And, and you, a lot of you probably heard this story before. Maybe I'll sit in my new chair a minute while I do this part. You probably heard this story before, but it's a good story. And if you haven't heard it, you get to hear it now. So 2002, May of 2002, I worked for Hewlett-Packard. I was a sales manager, had an awesome job, made lots of money. It was, it was just a really good life. You know, we lived on the lake, had a big mortgage. We had boats. I mean... We, we, we had a really excellent, you know, world life. And uh, Hewlett-Packard bought another computer company called Compact Computer, roughly the same size as us, you know, but we bought them. They didn't buy us, you know, my opinion. We won. They lost. We bought you. But it turns out the way they did this um, merger, not acquisition, they treated it like a merger, is they took every part of both companies, like um, computer sales, HP, Compact, Look at the processes, look at the systems, look at the people and figure out which one was better. Oh, we like Compact's better. Okay. In that part of the new company, it looked like Compact bought HP because they would um, implement all of Compact's systems. And, and truly what mattered the most to guys like us was whoever got put in the job. So if they picked an HP system or process, they typically would pick like an HP vice president to run it. And then the HP vice president, because he now has these huger responsibilities, is going to pick the people that he knows that have made him successful or her successful. And all the people that work for them are typically going to be HP people. And if you look right down through the organization, it looks like mostly HP. Same true with Compaq, right? Mostly Compaq, if they put the Compaq person in the chair at the top. Well, in my part of HP, right, remember, big mortgage, boats, kind of expensive lifestyle, um, never spent a lot of time thinking about tomorrow, mostly living for today. Um, no way, no way I could replace my income someplace else. I didn't even have a college education, right? I mean, I was such an anomaly in that world. Well, the guy in the chair in my world was a compact guy. So all the people he hired under him, compact people. All the people they hired under them, compact people. In my world, all the way up, all the way sideways, I was only HP, the only one out of all the managers. All my peers were compact people. All the ones that were my peers before, they didn't work at HP anymore. They were part of the savings of the merger. Man, I'm telling you, I started to just have anxiety over my job. Everybody had anxiety over the job because HP was this nice little Boy Scout company. Everybody loves everybody, you know, treat the employees nice. Compact was ruthless. I mean, just ruthless. They, they were very different culturally than Hewlett-Packard was. So anyway, I'm starting to worry because I'm figuring I'm short for this world. And, and if HP lets me go, HPAC, maybe we should have called them. If HP lets me go, how am I going to pay the mortgage? What shame I'm going to have in my life that I had all this stuff, but I really couldn't afford it without this job that I really wasn't that qualified for because I was the guy that they never noticed. I didn't have a college education, you know, it just... How did this all happen? And, and I started to sweat. I'm working 65, 70 hours a week, traveling all over the country, trying to look good, 
you know, there's there's very little Christian kind of camaraderie in the employees, and everybody else is doing the same. And one day, in my every morning I get up, honestly, for two hours, three hours, every morning I get up, and I would just worship God and pray and read my Bible. At some point I started reading my Bible, but for the longest time all I did was just worship and pray. And I was telling God, it's like, you got to do something, God. I can't lose my job. I can't lose my job. And then I was reading my Bible, and I get to Matthew 6, and I'm reading the scripture that says, don't worry about these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all this will be added to you. And I was so distraught that I just said, God, if you're true, then this is true. And if this is true, then I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. You'll have to help me, but I'm working 70 hours a week. I'm going to have an ulcer. I'm going to say that you probably want me to give HP an honest day's work, right? I'm giving them 40 hours a week, starting tomorrow, 40 hours. That's all they get because they're giving me a paycheck, right? I, I, I need to work for my paycheck, but I'm not giving them 65 anymore. I'm taking these extra 25 or 30 hours a week, and I'm going to seek your kingdom and your righteousness with it. I'm going to trust that you are going to take care of everything that I need. However that looks, keep my job, whatever, you have to take care of me. And I did it, literally. I'm telling you, I did it. I refused. To, I mean, there were times I probably had to work more than 40 hours because of airplane flights and different things, but, but basically I refused to give HP more than 40 hours because the balance between then and whatever was God's. I never, I never, we got, I was in sales. Let me tell you, all I know is being measured by a sales quota. If you are 100.0% of your quota, you're a hero and everybody loves you and nobody offers you their help. Help isn't a good thing in this context. If you're 99.8% of quota, I mean, just the tiniest little bit behind, nobody likes you. You have all this explaining to do and everybody's offering you their help. It's no fun to be in sales. And honestly, I had real quotas. Like my biggest quota for a 12-month period was $1.2-something billion. It's over $100 million a month of sales that had to be generated in my organization for me to be at 100.0 and be an okay guy and not a bum. I never gave him more than 40 hours. I never, for a month, a quarter, or a year, missed my quota. I never had employee problems, not one. Never had an issue with an employee. Never had an issue with a customer, zero. Once I started to sincerely from my heart choose to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness and, and, and not worry about the other things because he says here that that's his job, whether it's making my sales quota. And then let me tell you, in a company like HP, probably like most companies, they will tell you that customer is number one, but they're not. Money is number one, right? And you can be bringing in all your money and have unhappy customers and keep working there. You can't have happy customers and not bring in your money and keep working there, right? It's, it's about the money. Never, ever had any stress. I would go to sales meetings, like sales review meetings. I remember I flew, flew to Boston one time. I flew to California one time. It was, I'm getting to know my compact counterparts, that, you know, our new HP people, and they would bring 70 PowerPoints. I mean, they would stand up there. They were so smart. I couldn't be smart enough to have 70 PowerPoints. And they would go through all this stuff and all this stuff, and then they'd say, you know, thank you very much. Uh, Pat, can you come up and tell us, you know, give us your business review? And I'd have five, maybe six. And the first one had my name on it, and the last one said thank you. 
And the whole middle part was whatever it is that I had to say about the business. And you know what? They could care less because I was always over quota. If I, if I showed up at 95% of quota and, and, and had five slides, I'd have got some help. I went to California for one of these things. Vice presidents were, were reviewing our businesses. And you, for the California meetings, typically you flew in the day before because of the travel. And so we're at the Hyatt or the Marriott at the San Francisco airport. And I had some time, so I went down uh, to the gym. And I'm walking on a treadmill. And one of my counterparts, a lady from Boston, a compact lady. And I mean, this lady was, this lady was smart, really sharp. She was either number two or number three runner-up for Miss America the year that Vanessa Williams won it in the 80s. I mean, she's just sharp as a tack. And she came down and she got on the thing next to me. I knew her a little bit from, you know, meetings or whatever. I didn't really know her well. And so we're walking on the treadmills. And after a few minutes, she says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. She said, I come to the meeting. I, I know it. I got 70 PowerPoints. I know when you get up, you're going to have five, and the first one's going to be your name, and the second or the last one's going to be thank you. And, and I'm, I, my husband and I, I'm, I'm never home. I don't see my kids. I'm traveling all the time. I'm, you know, I'm kissing customers' butts all the time so they won't call anybody and say they're mad. I, I'm, everybody's like me, but not you. You seem like you could care less about anything, but you don't ever have any problems. What's your secret? I said, you honestly want me to tell you? Will you listen to me if I tell you? And she said, yes. I said, Jesus. And I told her my seek first his kingdom and his righteousness story. And there's so much I could tell you more about my relationship with that lady. She got cancer, and we would get on conference calls every Friday morning, and we would pray over her on Friday mornings. It was so awesome. But anyway, that was a te- it was now it wasn't just me and God. It was now becoming a testimony. So remember, it started sometime in 2003. In 2006, the end of 2006, I get a phone call from this man. His name is Mike Morazic. Mike Morazic would be the, I, I almost say the prophetic voice of the Freedom Center Church, but, but he's, he's probably the leading. I'm sure there's other prophetic voices in the church, but if you said, who's the prophet of the Freedom Center, anybody would tell you it's Mike Morazic. Very prophetically gifted, very articulate guy. And um, he called it, and he, just, he was a discipler of Teresa and me, really a wonderful discipler of us. And he called and said, uh, could I come to your house? The Lord has a word for you guys. And it was like between maybe Christmas and New Year's of 2006. Sure, Mike, come on over. He comes over. He's got this piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, all these scriptures and all these things, and it was cool stuff. Um, but at the bottom, and the only part that was in bold letters was, Pat will have a new career in 2007 or a career change or something. And I'm like, okay, you know, the prophet hears in part. There's no way I'm having a career change. <laughs> no, seriously. I didn't believe it for a second. Because I knew that God had been blessing me, right? But I had to have HP. I've been there for, at that point, 23 years. I, I've been successful in my job. I was making all my measures. I, I could do it in 40 hours, and everybody else was doing it in 70 hours. It's like, it's cool, but he missed that one. I'm not going anywhere from HP. Couldn't replace it. I'd go and say, hey, listen, I want to do the same thing at HP with you. And they'd say, well, where did you go to college? And I'd say... Well, I got my girlfriend pregnant the first year, and she went to college, you know. That dog wouldn't hunt any place but HP because they inherited me. So I didn't even think anything of it. We went then. Um, I had a business trip to California in Palo Alto, meet sales meetings. You know, tell everybody your story, five slides. Hi, my, you know, Pat Brady, thank you. 
kind of deal. And then I was going to go to Sacramento for the end of the week because I had a rep that worked for me in Sacramento. I was going to run around and visit some customers with him since I was already out on the West Coast. And he had something come up and he couldn't meet with me that week. So I, I said, Trees, hey, why don't you come with me? You know, we'll go. You can go hang out in San Francisco, you know, have fun while I'm in my meetings. Then the end of the week, we can go to Tahoe and go skiing. And Teresa says, awesome, I want to go, but we're not going to Tahoe. Like, well, where are we going? She's like, we're going to Bethel, man. Bethel Church, Bill Johnson is in Redding, California, a couple hours north of Sacramento. Teresa's like, you might go skiing, but I am going to Bethel Church. So we went to Bethel Church, and we did everything you can do in a long weekend at Bethel Church. Every meeting they had, we went to it. Every outreach, we went to it. It was awesome. But in the very first meeting, they had this guy. Oh, there's more to this story. I won't bore you with all the rest of it. Um... They had this guy who was a guest speaker. He wasn't normally there. He was a missionary that they had planted in La Paz, Mexico. And um, his name was Denny Taylor. And Denny Taylor was uh, Uncle Denny. Uncle Denny. We have so many Taylors. Denny Taylor. And as he's introducing himself, he's telling a little bit about his story. And he's like, you know, I was a businessman, and we lived in a nice house, and we had a boat, and we had this nice cars, and you know, I had bought Teresa for her birthday, this race car. It was so cool. You know, I mean, and Teresa looked over, and he's like, hey, that guy sounds just like you. You know, his, his life paralleled our life so much. And then he said, he said, and then my wife and I went to Pemba, Mozambique, Africa, with Iris Ministries, and our whole life got turned upside down. Well, we had applied for and just been accepted to go to Pemba, Mozambique, Africa for three months to sit with Heidi Baker in her mission school. We're like, dang. Now we start to think about this Morasic prophecy, right? I mean, HP gave me off the whole summer. My boss approved that I could have the whole summer off. That's how well I was doing. I could take the whole summer off. Somebody else could be responsible for my quota, right? We're like, dang, that's wild. So we're starting to now think about this prophecy, like maybe, who knows, just a little while later, HP offers an early retirement. And they'd never, ever offered an early retirement before that you could qualify for if you were less than 50. I was 47 years old at the time. If you're less than 50, you can't have the early retirement. Only greater than 50. This is the first time ever. And they're like 80-year-old company at this point. Lots of early retirements they've done. So we're thinking, man, I wonder if maybe... This is part of the whole thing that, you know, what the guy said in Reading and the prophecy from Erasic. So I go to, we have financial advisor guy, right? I'd been to him once. It was 18 months prior. And I said, hey, you know, his name was Barry. Barry, how long before I can retire? Can I retire at 55? Now, at that point, I'm 46, right? So it's only nine more years can I retire at 55? Because I heard, you know, people retire at 55. I like to retire at 50. I mean, I like to retire that day, but I, I was more realistic than that. And Barry, he kind of put his arm on my shoulder. He says, nah, no, not 55. He's looked at everything. He's got all of our 401k and all that kind of stuff. I said, how about 60? And he's like, no, not 60. I'm like, Barry, you're killing me here. Come on. And he's like, how about 62? If everything, if we get you a good plan and everything goes perfect, I mean, hear my words, Pat, everything goes perfect, you could retire at 62. Like, ah, all right, 62. 62. Done. Don't think about money one time before that. Don't think about money one time after that. Never had a meeting with the guy again. I call him, I say, hey, Barry, I, this weird stuff is going. He's a brother in the Lord, you know, and a friend. We need to talk because I might need a different plan. 
I don't know what's maybe happening in our lives. And we sit down, and Barry said to me, brought all my stuff, looked at it for the first time in 18 months. He said, Pat, I don't know what God's done to your money, but you could retire today. You could retire today if you wanted to. I'm like, huh? And, he, and HP gave me a going away present. I got 13 months pay, which was a nice little chunk of money, but I don't, I never, there was no pension. We don't get a, a pension check. We, we don't have any income. In, in May of this year, we'll have gone six years with no income, Teresa and I. No income, right? 47. So God somehow accelerated in 18 months what Barry said if everything went perfectly could happen in 15 years. Yeah. So I, I just want to tell you one more part of the story that's, that, that hopefully you'll think it's cool. I was too chicken to actually do it. So well, there's a couple parts I would tell you, but this one part in particular. Sorry, I'm not a great storyteller. So um, we're trying to decide what to do, and we haven't told anybody, right? We're just praying. And we went to church, you know, Freedom Center. We go to the first service and the second service, and we went out to lunch. And then after lunch, Teresa and I said, let's just go back there and pray. Not pray about this, just let's go back there and pray. And they had a little room, you know, kind of like our drum room next to the stage. There were no drums in it. It was as cold as church on the street, though. And we went in that little room, and we just prayed. And we just, just prayed whatever we prayed. And then at some point later in the day, we heard you know, noise out in the sanctuary, and it was the people coming for the 6.30 service. So you know, we came out of the little room, and there was the prophet that had given us that prophecy. And um, you know, he says, hey, come here a minute. And we walk over to see him, and he says, the Lord has been speaking to me about you all afternoon. We said, well, what's he saying? And he said, the Lord says that you have a decision to make and that you're unsure. As a matter of fact, I don't think I knew about the money, the you can retire now part at this point. I didn't know that yet. This is what caused me to have that conversation with the financial guy. He says, the Lord says that you have a decision to make and you're unsure, which was absolutely true. And he said, the Lord has sent me to tell you that this new path that he's put in front of you is from him it's ordained, and I'm to pray a spirit of assurance over you so that you won't be afraid to follow him where he's taking you. We said, that's it. That was all the prophecy we needed. I signed up for the thing on Tuesday, and then I went to see the financial guy, and he said, holy Moses, you know, even without the going away present, you could retire today. So here's the part that um, I don't always tell with this story. I'm liking this, you know? I didn't realize we had money until I sat down with the guy. It's like, all of a sudden, I've got all this money. And I'm very conservative. So I'm not comfortable with the thought of not having a paycheck. I'm pretty comfortable with not going to work anymore. But the idea of not having a paycheck, and understand, it was more than just a paycheck. They paid for my telephone, my cable. I got a brand new car for almost my whole time at HP every year. And towards the end, it was every two years, so I had to drive a year-old car for the second year. They paid for all my gas, all the maintenance, car washes, window squirt. For, I mean, I had so much beyond just my paycheck from working at HP. And uh, so I liked the idea of not having to go to work. I, I didn't like so much not having a paycheck, even though the financial guy said we could do it. And um, I started praying, and I'm like, Lord, we owe almost $300,000 on this house. And, you know, uh, it would be really nice if you just paid for the house, too. Because then I would feel really, really secure about 
not having a paycheck because I wouldn't have this huge mortgage pay. It was like two grand a month to live in that house before you paid for the 600 and whatever dollars a month cold months utility bills that we had to pay. It was very expensive. And um, then I went and I, I decided that, you know what? I should probably, now that I got all this money, I should get make sure I got the right financial guy. So I got some references from some people and I went to, to my friend Barry and I said, listen, Barry, I'm going to pick somebody and I'm only going to look at two, you and this other guy and I'm going to bring you all my stuff and then you are going to, take a look at it, and you're going to make me a plan, and then I'm going to come back, and you're going to tell me why you're the best guy to help me manage this money. And I'm going to go to the other guy and tell him the same thing. And I did. I said, I'm going to give you two weeks to look at all this stuff. I'm coming back, and you, you demonstrate to me why I should pick you over him or you over him. And I started praying, God, maybe if you just pay for the house, just pay for the house. And when I went to see those guys that first time, I, I'm anal. I'm like ultimately like, spreadsheet to the nth degree, mapped all this stuff out. Everything we had was in it. And if you push the button on the different information, you know, if you looked up the price of the stock and all these things, you push the button, it would tell us exactly. We never considered any of the equity in our house for any of this. It would tell us exactly how much our, you know, we were worth. So I did that. I printed the spreadsheet. I gave a package to each one of these guys. I'm praying for the house. Now the two weeks goes up and I'm ready to go back. I thought, you know what? I ought to update the spreadsheet. So I punch in today's stock price and all that stuff. I hit the button. Guess how much our net worth went up in the two weeks between the times I pressed the button? 300,000 bucks. I'm telling you, I'm like, holy smokes, God, are you paying for the house? You, 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 geez, I really didn't think you'd do that. I should have asked for two houses. What a dummy. I never had the courage to pay off the house. So, and then most of it went away anyway because 2008 happened and we lost probably 40% of the whole thing and it doesn't matter because it's, God's got a plan and there's been, so many, there's been so many statements of his faithfulness. We've, we've had to stand on this plan. There was a time when um, Teresa paid the bills. It's like, I'm just this happy-go-lucky guy. I don't have to go to work anymore, you know, and I got money, we got a plan and everything. And she's like, hey, Pat, you need to sell something. I'm like, well, the next thing is, you know, HP stock. We're going to sell all of our HP stock. And she's like, then sell it. I'm like, no, because the plan was 45. It has to be 45. And it, it had gone down from the 2008. It had gone down to like 22. It's at like 12 bucks now. We sold it at 53. <laughs> but to, to be on the plan, it had to be 45. And she's like, you got to sell some. I'm like, I can't sell some. Because we got a plan, and I, and I prayed about it, and it's, it's the plan that's going to take us all through our whole life. And she's like, well, you could do what you want, but pretty soon when you turn the switch and the light doesn't come on, it's because you didn't sell some, right? <laughs> but I didn't sell some. And time goes by, she bugs me, she bugs me, she bugs me. But I don't do it, because i got a plan with God, and I'm, and I'm having faith to the plan. Because it's his job to make it work, but i got to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. i got to walk out the plan. And I go to Dana Rose's house to pick up an expense check because everything you see, 99.9% flowed through my Visa card. And then Dana, the church part, you know, she writes us a check and pays us back. So I go to get this check from her house and she's not there. And her son says it's right there on the counter and I grab it. But there's like a Hallmark card in there. And I get out to the truck and, you know, curious, I open up the Hallmark card. And it's like, you know, hey, church on the street, you know, Pastor Pat and Teresa, we love you so much. And I'll drop a check for three grand. Oops, sorry. (laughs) 
out drops a check for 3,000 bucks. And I called Teresa and I said, Teresa, church gave us 3,000 bucks. She says, good, we need it. And I said, nah, you know, we got a plan with God. Seriously, it's why we wouldn't take a salary because we feel like God's paid us up front. He gave it to us up front. We don't need it every week because he gave it to us up front. I'm like, I think we need to give it back. She's like, well, you know, do what you want, but when the light switch doesn't bring light. (laughs) So I called Chris Dickerson, elder on the board, and I said, Chris, did the church, like when I wasn't looking, did you guys like take a love offering? He's like, well, you know, sort of. He kind of doesn't say no, but he doesn't say yes. And I'm like, okay, hang up the phone. I think, nah, you know, love offering looks like $2,980.40. It's not $3,000 exactly. I said, is this the church's money? And he said, yeah, just shut up and take the money. I'm like, I don't think we're going to take the money. I get home. I talk to Teresa. And she says, Pat, listen, I just prayed, God, you need to do something. Because he's not going to sell anything. And the light switch isn't going to work. And we're not going to be able to pay our bills. You have to do something. She said, Pat, I just prayed that. And then you picked up a check for $3,000. Trust me, it's not that hard to get me to take your money. So I'm like, okay, that's good enough. We'll take the check. We take the check, whatever. I don't know how much money's in our checking account. HP stock is going up, going up, going up. That Friday, it hit $45.02. I got on the computer, I hit sell. This, this batch of HP stock. There's another batch that sold at 53. This batch of HP stock, 45.02. But that was Labor Day weekend. So the transaction couldn't get executed until Tuesday. It took two weeks then for the check to come, two more weeks for the check to come. When the check came, the $3,000 just ran out. God made a way to bridge the gap between when our bills were due, when I was willing to sell the money, and oh, by the way, it took you know, two and a half weeks more for the money to come because he's faithful. He, saw, he knew in the plan before the whole thing. He was faithful. So the point of that whole story is this. From the moment I started to truly, I committed in my heart to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That was number one in my life. HP lost 25 or 30 hours a week. I mean, my family really didn't lose anything because that's part of seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm sure I never had an under quota. I never had an employee problem. I never had um, a customer problem. And he took what in perfection in the natural was going to be 15 years away and made it happen in 18 months. And then he positioned us to be here now so that we don't have to take a paycheck. We've never had a paycheck from May of 2007 until now. No paycheck, no pension check. You guys gave us three grand. That was really sweet. And you've given us other really nice gifts, um, uh, dinner cards and things like that. But the point is that... I don't wonder anymore if God can, but he might not. Because I know that he can and he does. Okay, that's our testimony. That's a secret. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) I see it like Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 17. It reads, now the day was ending. All these people, Jesus told his guys, he had just sent them out. To, to, to go, he, he had empowered them to go do these things and sent them out. They had come back and they were weary and tired. So they jumped in this boat. They were going to go to a place and rest and the people saw them leaving and all the people started running and they run, run, run. When Jesus gets there, there's thousands of people there. So he starts to teach them. But they're not where they belong, right? They had to run to get there. So he's concerned about them. 
It says, now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here, for here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, Jesus, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves. Now understand, I don't think he's talking about like a, a loaf of Wonder Bread. I think he's talking about like a piece of pita bread maybe would be a loaf, right? Five loaves and two fishes. Two fish. That's the plural for fish is not fishes, two fish. <laughs> you got a bonus learning today. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. So there, were, there could have been 15,000 people there. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. So Jesus starts with five pita breads, two fish, maybe fifteen or 20,000 people. Everybody eats to their full, and they collect leftovers more than they started with. It's not a problem for God to find abundance, to meet the, and these things will be added to you when we seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Let me re- I'm getting done. Let me read this to you. There, there are parallels of the seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And one of them is in Luke chapter 12, 29 through 32. It's a shorter verse, but I, I just, I love the way Jesus is speaking here. He says, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying for all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. This is the part I love. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So when you think about worrying about anything, really, because God can provide you everything, Jesus says, little flock, don't worry. I know what you need, and it is my Father's great pleasure to give you his kingdom. Last week, I ended the way I'm going to end this week. The scriptures that we started to read today start out for this reason. Jesus says, for this reason, do not worry. And it's the way my Bible is written. It's like the previous verse ends. There's a big gap. There's bold letters that are introducing the next verses. And then the next verses start. In my mind, when I look at that, I think that, okay, we've finished a thought. Now we're starting a new thought because the big bold letters and the, and the spaces in between them. But it starts out for this reason. So you have to ask yourself, what's the reason I shouldn't have to worry? What, what's the reason he's telling me all this? And it goes back to Matthew 6.24, and Matthew 6.24 reads this way, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So what he's saying is this. If you serve wealth, you're not going to do all the things that he talked about. It's like, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth, but store up treasure for yourself in heaven. To the measure that we trust God, we won't hoard earthly things. If we don't trust God, then we we don't know where our provision is going to come from, so we hoard the things that we can't really hold on to. Because we're going to hold on to something. 
So for this reason, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and wealth. If you serve wealth because of fear, because of mistrust, you're going to lead yourself to a place that isn't God's best for you. It isn't his... Um, Gosh, it was, it was the end of last week's sermon, but I didn't write it down for this week. If you serve wealth, you're going to serve those things that aren't about God. But if you will trust in God, if he can be your only master, and in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, he is then able. You, you say either, I'm going to take care of it myself because I don't trust you, God. He says, okay. And he allows you to take care of it yourself. doesn't mean he doesn't bless you because everything you have, you got from him anyway, if it's good or perfect. But his plan is for you to be focused straight on heaven, right on his kingdom and his righteousness, manifesting his power, manifesting his love, being righteous, being as he is, as we ought to be, and then he's taking care of everything. He, he, I, I have the testimony. I know personally that it's true. I think we only serve wealth for two reasons. And maybe there's more, but I think there's two reasons that we serve wealth. One is greed. We're just greedy. We just want what we want. It's not a good reason to choose a God, to serve greed. The second is just fear that God won't or that he can't. I'm here to tell you he will and that he can. I'll I'll leave you with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I love this. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible because sometimes I don't understand things. Oftentimes, I don't understand things. And I always, when I don't understand things and I'm praying, I always hear that in my, in my spirit's ear. Proverbs, go to Proverbs and I read this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So before we just be done today, I, I prayed that every person, I, I doubt that there's anyone here. I, I hope it's true that maybe there would be people here but I doubt it, that there's not some issue of fear, some area where trusting God is less than absolute in your life, in, in your mind. And, and if there is, it's a stronghold. It's a fortress that needs to come down. And, and I prayed that every person, maybe, uh, Maddie, take the big lights down for just a bit. Every person could ask God, what's mine, God? Where's one? And, and we would all hear at least one thing that God would speak to us And then we could come up here and we could just put it on this altar and we could give it to him because that's what he wants. He he wants you to be anxious for nothing. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He, He wants to take those burdens so that your focus can be on his business. Just like Jesus said when he was like 12 years old and his he, he ducked his parents when they were leaving Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he was amazing the rabbis with the questions that he asked and finally figured out he wasn't with them. And they turned around. They were days on their way journey home and they came back and they found him. They're like, Jesus, my gosh, why did you stay here? You didn't come home. And he said, don't you know I had to be about my father's business? And, and that's what he wants from us, to just be about his business. And we can count on him to be about our business. So, I want you to pray and I want you to ask the Lord to show him or show you something if there's any if there's any that's fear that's a lack of trust an area of your life that you can then put on the altar and sacrifice back to Jesus in faith trusting that he will add all these things unto you that you don't have to be afraid 
Now is the time to do that. Now is the time to come up here. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that people won't be hesitant, Lord, that, that any spirit that might hinder our hearing of what you're saying to us this morning would be bound and silenced. The spirit of fear bound and silenced. In the name of Jesus. If there be any fear, Lord, any fear, any area where we don't trust you, help us, Lord, to know what that is so that we can give those things away. Give them back to you. You don't need our help with those things. You need your church to be your body, seeking out your kingdom's manifestation on this earth. Lord, I pray that we would be people that would release our fears, that we would trust in the one who can take five pita breads and two fishes and turn them into more than enough food to satisfy 10 or 15 or even 20,000 people and have left over more than they started with. You're the God who could speak. You just say the words and everything that is becomes being. Planets and stars and mountains and trees and water and birds and fish and and just everything, God. You have so much abundance in the power of your spoken word that you're the one who could take dust and just push it into a pile and form it into a shape and then just breathe on it right into those nostrils you breathe and and a whole being, a mankind, an atom is born. Help us, Lord. Give us the grace to see, to hear, to know what it is that needs to go. Give us the courage, just like you told Joshua. You told Joshua to be courageous. You said, be strong, be courageous, and do not fear or be dismayed. Give us that grace, Lord, and help us that we would receive the grace to be courageous, to be strong, and to trust you and you alone for all of our provision, for our healing. We've trusted you for our eternity, Lord, but you give us now, not just then. Stir in us the passion that you shared in the target prayer this morning, Lord the passion for your kingdom, the passion for your righteousness, the passion for the orphan and the widow, Lord. You took Israel from 100% scraping by and drew 47% out, and they had an abundance because if they did what you asked them to do, you provided everything that they needed. You're an awesome God. You're so worthy of our praise. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of all your glory, God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We just declare today that we will not bind ourselves to fear anymore. When that familiar spirit whispers in our ear, we say, no. There's no profit in it. It doesn't buy us anything. If it's not for today, we're not going to worry about it today. Because you're going to provide for us today our daily bread. You provided for Israel every single day manna and quail. All they needed. They didn't have to save any for tomorrow. Because you're faithful. Tomorrow's came tomorrow. And on the day they weren't to harvest, you gave them two days worth. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you.